And now, coming to you live from Kansas City in the 74th World Science Fiction Convention, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan with Nebula and World Fantasy Award nominated writer Kelly Robson on the Gucci Podcast! Wanting to think of their horse, there ought to be horse galloping sounds now. Um, there you go. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us. We've been uh, Kelly and I had an interesting conversation yesterday about plumbing and science <laughs> and fantasy. Usually, you must be talking about Nicola Griffith's Slow River. Yeah, well, okay. the, the great sewage science fiction novel of all time. Absolutely. Yeah. But but we had the the the, the plumbing under the waters of Versailles. It's a pl- it's, it's very good plumbing engineering stories. There's uh, Palo Bachelubi's Pump Six. Which is about the plumbing in New York failing, and I think we have a subgenre going. And, and, and you're in what? You're in not only the nominations. You're in two years best anthologies. For uh, that story. I for that story is just in one year's best. Oh, okay. yeah, and that's in Jonathan's year's best. Good well, well act, actually, it seems like you're like you're five minutes into your career and everything's gone crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feels I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. <laughs> I understand. Like people go, you're not. It's not luck. It it is luck. Right, it's yeah. it's good work, it's hard work, but it's also there's a certain amount of luck, yeah. and and I feel I feel um, so like I'm just enjoying the feeling of being lucky right now, and I know it's not gonna last, mm-hmm. so that's fine, right? Like it's it's not a kind of an ego thing. It's just yeah, like I'm gonna feel happy about this for as long as it lasts. I think the luck is there. You're right, absolutely about a first story or a first two or three stories yeah. that they have to get a certain amount of visibility, mm-hmm. and that's where I think things like award nominations and anthologizations make a difference. Because after that, then people will be looking for your name, yeah. and at that point, it's up to you to keep delivering good yes. stuff. So the, <laughs> yes. the pressure is on you. Yes, and and I hope I can keep doing that. And I was a little bit scared about that recently because I've been working on a uh, novella, mm-hmm. science fiction novella, um, time travel novella, and I've been working on it so hard for a year, and it's a really big scope and really um, exciting, like uh, 300 years in the future sort of world building, plus we've got the time travel element, and 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 it took me a year to draft it. It's 50,000 words. It can be a novella. It will be under 40. And uh, But I was really, really scared because I had been going so slow with it. Mm-hmm. And, but it's a super solid draft, so that's okay. It will be good. Um but I was scared about my pace. Mm-hmm. However, I got this fantastic reminder that, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, because uh, Ellen Kushner invited me to write a story for her uh, Tremontaine mm-hmm. uh, cereal box. Mm-hmm. Uh, cereal box, Tremontaine cereal. And so, as you may know, cereal box is uh, it's mm-hmm. a web app. You can buy it in mm-hmm. all sorts of different areas. It is um, serialized stories, and um, there's a whole bunch of different stories that come out once a week. Mm-hmm. They also come out with um, audio. Oh, yeah. And uh, anyway, so Tremontaine, this is, uh, Tremontaine is a prequel to Swords Point. Yeah, yeah. And so she invited me to write a story for her for this, and uh, I got it done in a month, and it's really good, and she loves it. So now I'm like, I'm okay, I'm all right. I can do it. It was, uh, it's, it's, my pace is all right, I'm okay. Yeah. But but step us back for a second. When did you start writing? Because mm-hmm. your first story appears like last year. Yeah. So 
I have been writing for a really long time, been writing all my life, mm -hmm. been writing seriously since NaNoWriMo 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, that is when I decided, okay, come on, you've got to start uh, to start taking this seriously if it's ever going to happen. So um, did NaNoWriMo, was super fantastic. I finally managed to put away some demons, like the, the, the editor in the back of your head that's telling you, oh, that's really shitty work you're doing there. Really? <laughs> oh my God, God, you can't write at all. So just got to get those words down. 50,000 words in, in one month, and I did it, and it was really, really good, and I uh, caught the bug. And uh, so, any particular people you thought of as mentors? Oh, yes, Michael Bishop. Well, really? Um, uh, well, I didn't know him at that time, but his work mm. is. Uh, he's he's unfreaking believable. He's such a sweetheart. Also. He is such a sweetheart, and I really got to hang out with him and his wife, Jerry, at mm -hmm. the Nebulas this year. Oh, great. They came to the Nebulas, and and we got to hang out with them quite a bit, and I just love them so much. They're so good. We'd met before, but it was the first time we mm -hmm. really spent a lot of time together. And Michael is so great. He's just the world's greatest guy, and his work is freaking unbelievable, and it continues to be unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I'm um, reading his uh, upcoming uh, collection of Georgia stories mm -hmm. right now, and it, this is stuff that I haven't. And most of it's kind of mainstream, and it's really good. Oh, like yeah. Snake Handlers. Yeah, yeah. The the, the, the rattlesnakes and men. Yeah, yeah. Rattlesnakes and men is in there, but there are also some other stories in there as well. Mm -hmm. So Michael Bishop, Welch John Williams, mm -hmm. uh, oh. who I adore, and who actually just started reading his new um, uh, Tor dot com imprint. Is it a novella, novella. or is it a novella. short book? It's, well, it's actually a 55,000 word oh, okay. short novel. So it's a short novel. Impersonations. Yeah. I, uh, I have got a, a preliminary copy of it from some nice editor. And, uh, oops, <laughs> shouldn't I not have said that? No, no, it's fine. Uh, and so I started reading that last night and I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, Walter was my instructor at Taos Toolbox mm -hmm. in 2007. So you've nano you've gone to some writer's workshops, because like 10 years pass, right, between yeah. nano and yes. your first story coming yes. out. Yes. So, okay, so what happened? Why I <clears throat> just clapped my hands for no reason. Hello. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so enthusiastic. Yeah, what is that? Like, we meant to do that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, right in front of the micro right. microphone, too. Really sorry. I won't do that again. I get so enthusiastic when I babble. So you've got Walter John, you've got Michael. Yeah. Oh, so what happened? What happened? I mean, was it, I mean, were you writing consistently? Yeah. And it just, was, I mean, convincing yourself you were learning your craft? Yes. I was writing at an okay level. I wrote two trunk novels. They were okay. There was something that I was missing, and I didn't know what that was. And in uh, <laughs> April Fool's Day, 2013, I got laid off of my job, <laughs> which uh, a job that I loved and which I had every indication I was doing an amazing job at because everybody was constantly telling me that. But I was working for architects. Word to the wise, never work for architects because architects are professional services people who are well able to shed their um, dead weight when things are bad for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, they are very, very okay with laying off huge numbers of people very, very short notice. So um, I got laid off of this job that I loved. I'm a proposal manager. Mm -hmm. my, my day job is I handle the proposal process from start to finish, and this is actually something that I work uh, into my... Uh, Time travel novella okay. that uh, that I'm I'm working on right now. Anyway, um, <clears throat> huge ego uh, crush, 
And um, so I was feeling really, really horrible about myself. And the very next day, Alex and I went to a coffee shop. I sat down and I pulled out a story that had been, I'd been kind of noodling around on for a few years. Uh, hadn't really been working, didn't know why. And um, I started rewriting Waters of Versailles from scratch at that point. And what I had, because I was under such stress and because I was so convinced that, I don't know, sometimes when everything looks bleakest is when mm. you start making big strides. Mm, yeah. And what I actually learned at that point was to, to write scenes. Mm. And I hadn't, the problem with my writing previous to that had been I didn't know how to write scenes. Yeah. So I started at that point, I wrote, wrote scenes. And, uh, and it worked out really well. And so that was Waters of Versailles. And it was actually a really clean, after many rewrites, and then when I sent it to Alex and my mm -hmm. first readers, it was really clean. So, um, and that took about five months. And, uh, and then it got rejected in a few places. And I hung on to it for a while and um, wrote some other stuff and yep. mm -hmm. made some sales. And um, my first story came out in uh, 2015, February 2015. Yep. And that was at Clark's World, and that yeah. was the Three Resurrections of Jessica Churchill, mm -hmm. which um, was up for a uh, Theodore Sturgeon Award. Let's back up a little bit before the, because we, we talk about immediate like mentors and, and, and teachers. What did you read though? What did you? Yes, yeah. grow up um, wanting to write. Connie Willis. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so you know, I, I hesitate to say Connie Willis is my mentor. Um, she was actually a teacher at Taos Toolbox as oh, well. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, and one of the reasons why I absolutely had to go to Taos Toolbox in its inaugural year, year in uh, 2007 was Connie and Walter were mm -hmm. two of my other favorite writers. The only, the only, you know, if, if Michael Bishop had been there, I probably would have just died of happiness. <laughs> um, Connie Willis changed my life. Oh, well, she'll love to hear this. Well, uh, how, well I mean, if, how did she like how did hit she you with the car by accident? <laughs> well, let's, let's hope it's a good thing. She didn't. She didn't run over you. Honey, no, no, no. So, um, <clears throat> in uh, December of '83, hmm. I was traveling on Highway 16 in the winter after Christmas with my family. I was uh, 16 years old. Um, huge. Uh, Mm -hmm. blended family. Uh, my dad and my stepmother in the front seat and us four kids in the back, the back seat of the uh, 1977 uh, Chevy Suburban mm -hmm. and traveling for hours and hours and hours on this winter highway with black ice and mountains on mm -hmm. either side. And we stopped for gas in this tiny little town called Blue River, uh, British Columbia, which is one of the bleakest towns <laughs> you ever want to visit in the winter. It is cold. It is remote. On this highway, it's, um, you're from Australia, yeah. you know this. On this highway, it's one town every hour. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, um, we, I went into this clapboard shack where this person had, um, it was basically the, the general store for the town. Mm -hmm. And they had Asimov's magazine up above the town. Really? Yes, they did. Well, I guess in 83 they could have. Yes, that's right. And, uh, Connie Willis's Blued Moon was on the cover. Mm -hmm. And it was a cover that really was a good cover to attract the eye of a 16 year old girl. It had a cat on it mm -hmm. and a moon and it had a woman's name on it. 
So, and I had already been reading a lot of science fiction, mm -hmm. but I'd never written or read a lot of short fiction. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately bought this magazine and mm -hmm. I uh, read it sitting in this suburban and I could feel, I, I read Connie's story, Blue Moon. I don't know if you know the story. Yeah. You remember the story? It's amazing. It's about, it's about linguistics mm -hmm. and happenstance. The things that Connie writes about a lot, right? Chance. Yeah and misunderstandings, and the, the linguistic games that she plays in it are just so delightful. And I had never experienced anything like that before. She, uh, she changed as I'm, I get, I get sitting there in this car with my, you know, family fighting in the back seat, mm -hmm. and it's it's terrible situation. And I and, and Connie, I've got this book in front of me, and I'm reading Connie's story, and I'm just my brain is just expanding. I'm <laughs> laughing, and I I'd never experienced. My family is not intellectual. I never experienced intellectual playfulness yeah. before on that wow. level. She changed my life. From then on, I was every time I went into the drugstore, I'm like at the magazine rack looking for Asimov's magazines. But I'm also buying FNSF. Sure. I'm buying, um, uh, I'm buying uh, Analog. I'm buying you know, yeah. everything that I can possibly get my hands on. This is, we lived in a small town. There's yeah. no bookstore, right? Yeah. So, um, so really, Asimov's magazines in the 80s and early 90s are where I come from. Those gardeners. And that's where you really bonded. I mean, it's fascinating yeah. because we're, we're, I was watching a panel yesterday about that very period. Yeah. And there's something remarkable about it, that yes. body of fiction that came out. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that that cohort of writers who were squabbling and fighting amongst themselves, kind mm -hmm. of thing, creatively, produced incredible work. And it seemed like there's something viscerally exciting about it each issue of the magazine yes, that came out. it was. It was amazing. And Octavia Butler and Tip mm -hmm. Crew was still alive at that time. And writing for Asimov's, yeah. And writing for Asimov's and... <laughs> um, the, Earth, the Earth Doth Like a Snake Renew. Yeah. Uh, was a story, my first Tip Tree story, and she just, like, that broke my brain, too. Right? Yeah. Just a kid <laughs> reading this shit. And, like, it was Jim Kelly was, I think. Yeah, he was coming along. He was coming story. along and, and Jim just Because Kelly, Kessel, Shepard, yeah. uh, Connie, yeah. um, all of them, I mean, Stan yeah. Robinson, yeah. were filling the pages of the magazines at that time. Yeah, yeah. And there was a real, that, that, that conflict, that real humanism, the kind of fiction they were writing, that was really powerful. It was amazing. And, and to, to be bathed in that, at this, at this tender age, um, absolutely made me the person I am. And so, did you then what, follow Connie's work in, into novel length? Oh yes, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yes, I did. And 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 you know how how people remember where they were when um, you know, when Reagan got shot or when the mm. towers came down or whatever. I remember every time I came across a Connie book <laughs> when I saw Lincoln's Dreams because this is a yeah, way right. free. Yeah, the Blue Jay. Yeah, and you, you don't know what's coming out, right? Yeah, you don't. You don't know it. And, yes. and, and it's, you know, I remember the exact circumstances of walking into that bookstore in Edmonton on Jasper Avenue and seeing Connie Willis in the window and going, oh my God, <laughs> grabbing it and being so, so excited. And, you know, and just, because probably you guys too, like standing in front of the, the wall, the science fiction wall of books and just for hours. When they used to have them. Yeah. When they used to have a variety of things. Yeah. Because I, 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 I I, I was thinking you were younger, much younger than I was, yeah. and, and, you, and you are, but... No, I'm 49. Okay. Um, 
So you're kind of that generation that could still discover the bookstore. Yeah. You, know, you, you didn't mm-hmm. have to find what little science fiction made its way into the local Barnes & Noble. There were actually exciting books, and you had to choose which one. Yes. Um, and I wonder if that experience is lost on younger readers today. I wonder if you can have the kind of experience you had. No, we'd have to ask uh, a younger reader. Somebody who's there, there must be an equivalent experience. I mean, you, know, you talk about that. I remember viscerally, and I come from a smaller city than you do, mm. and we did not have any specialist SF bookstores or anything like that. Mm. Barely specialist SF sections in the bookstores, mm-hmm. and because of the amount of time for anything mm-hmm. to come through, we were dealing with generally fifties and sixties science fiction when I was in my late teens, mm-hmm. and certainly Doc Smith and A. Van Vogt were filling the stands. Mm-hmm. But I remember summer of 1980, I think it was, walking into a bookstore in the middle of town. Uh, the, the, the description wouldn't make much sense to you exactly where it was. I was right there, and you walk in, and there on the stand is The Number of the Beast by Robert A. Heinlein. Oh, the yeah. only new release Robert Heinlein novel i ever seen in my life to that point. Everything before that was old stuff being reprinted. And I was just like... <gasps> Yeah. And it was like more money than I'd ever spent in my life on a book. And I was yes. like, I mean, it didn't help. It was terrible. But it was kind of like, <gasps> I have to have that book and like run away and read it like right now and then read it again. Yeah. You know, uh, and you know, you, you talk about Michael Bishop being a, a incredible influence. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, he completely was a foundational influence on me as an editor oh, with really? his book Light Years and Dark, yeah. which came out in 1984 and is like a completely incredible anthology. I don't even know about this. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it, I don't, it was not a big success. It came out from Berkeley Putnam. I think it was supposed to originally have some terrible title like Cosmopedia or some damn thing. And it had original stories by Gardner Del Soir and Tiptree and Howard Wardrop and all kinds of people. And it just completely changed my view of the world. The original Le Guin. Wow. Great book. Wow. Not wow. widely credited, but something that's completely changed what, what I wow, did. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, I'll have to go looking for that one. But that, that was the 80s. I mean, I know they're, the, the more diverse and diffuse field we have now has the same quality of work. But there are things that happened the period of Asimov and FNS, if you're talking about, and to a lesser extent, analog. Um, the ace science fiction specials of the mid-1980s, yes. which is like maybe the single mm. greatest blurp of novels of all time. <laughs> I'm just wondering, when you describe going into those news bookstores, and I think a lot of us... Grew up, grew up without in, without very much money. You're going to buy used books, and if you find a used bookstore, uh, which is where I grew up, actually not far from where we are in Kansas City, there was a string of used bookstores, and I would go in there, and you weren't seeing just the new things. That you wouldn't see. So a certain generation growing up with those bookstores saw the entire history of the field laid out in front of them. I would buy a novel, and it might be. Uh, it might be a Frank Herbert novel that came out that year, or it might be an Edmund Hamilton novel from the 1930s. And the field was just kind of a, 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 a mishmash. And I didn't, until years later, develop a sense of chronology. Uh, and I wonder if people who grew up with used bookstores had this more historical sense of the field because you were reading more than just the current stuff. Is that what your experience was? Um, well, when I was a teenager, so the period that we've been talking mm-hmm. about, when I was a teenager, I was just buying new books because mm-hmm. uh, okay. the only time that I could actually buy books was when I went into Edmonton to visit my mother as my parents were divorced. Ah. Uh, and we were living, I was living with my dad in a small town. We had no bookstores. So, uh, you know, I could only get to the mall. Mm-hmm. That's all the you know, the buses around to the mall. And if I even knew there were used bookstores, I'm not entirely sure at that young age. Um, but when I was in my early 20s, that's mm-hmm. when I started um, uh, 
discovering the used bookstores. And that's yeah. when I started reading Joanna Russ. Right. And I got all of my, you know, tip tree backlist and uh, read all of her stuff and her novels and everything else. And um, yeah, so used bookstores were not a resource for me as a child, but mm-hmm. as a young adult. But as a young adult, you figured, but by then you knew what you wanted to look for. That's true. Yeah, although I always kind of knew what I wanted to look for. Well, if you were younger, or you mentioned Joanna Ross, how did, you said you discovered her, but yeah. how did you hear about her? How did you know to look for her? Must have been a women's studies course in university. Mm. Um, I probably first knew about her, uh, her book about um, about feminism and, and how to discredit women's writing or how to... How to suppress women's writing. How to suppress writing. women's writing. That's probably how I first oh, knew okay. about her. Yeah. Or no, 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 no. It was actually, it was a science fiction course. It was a science fiction survey course mm-hmm. in university, in uh, at the University of Alberta. And um, we read some contemporary stuff. We read uh, Tiptree. We read um, Neil Stevenson, Hyperion. It was just out at that point. Dan Simmons. Dan Simmons, Dan Simmons sorry. Not Neil Stevenson. Uh, no, no. Um, yeah, Dan Simmons. And, uh, and, and some other exciting things. So, yeah, so that I would have read The Female Man then. Okay. Yeah. And jumped into Russ. But well, is, is she she somebody you regard as an influence? Then? No, no. Okay, but, okay. That's, that's a great answer. I love writers <laughs> yeah. who know who aren't their influences, yeah. um, because there are there are different kinds of writers, and I, I I know a lot of writers who admire other writers but don't resonate as a writer with them, and uh, and being able to make that distinction, it seems to me, is an indication that you have a clear sense of where you are as a writer. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and what I like, and, mm-hmm. and, and what I like intellectually and what I like emotionally, um, mm-hmm. right? Because those are different things. Sure, yeah. So what, are, what is it that you do like? I mean, how do, did Connie Willis and Michael Bishop and these other writers influence the young woman you were to become the woman who sat down in 2005 to start writing stories? I like... I like good stories, right? I like, I like, I like people, mm. I like people who can sit down and make you feel like they're telling you a story. Yeah, okay. Who are, um, uh, who, who are gonna dish the dirt on the situation that is in their heads. Um, I don't, I don't particularly care for experimental stuff. Sure. I, I like it to hit a nice emotional and intellectual even keel. And I, so that's what I like about it. So, so I'm talking about, um, Walter John Williams, he's just so amazing, right? He'll tell you this fantastic yarn, but it's not shallow. Mm. It's, it's, it's his, his, his Praxis space opera series is so freaking great. <laughs> yeah. Like it is just so fun. It is rollicking and it's amazing. And, and the, the characters are, they are larger than life, but they are also incredibly like, they're realistic. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, I think another thing that, uh, Walter John and, and Connie are very different writers, but they have some things in common, and one of them is that they're both they're both very meticulous researchers. And mm-hmm. There's a huge amount of... You mentioned Blue Moon and um, uh, Crosstalk, which is coming out in October. It's, it's, it's about telepathy, but all the stuff about telepathy. She's she's looked up the Ryan experiment. She's done Bridie Murphy, and she always does this, and it never it's never ostentatious. Mm-hmm. It was always worked into the sort of... The witty, uh, clever stuff, and um, and I, I was just saying, the water of assignments have taken a lot of research, and to embed that much research without interrupting the narrative is a skill in itself. Well, I'll tell you how I approach it. I don't approach it like research. Mm. I read a lot of 
um, nonfiction. Mm. And I read nonfiction for pleasure. And so I was reading, uh, I was reading just books about Versailles, about the building of the building mm. and what circumstances are, uh, Nancy Mitford has a fantastic book about the mm. Sun King, uh, about that area. So I'm just reading this mm. for fun. And then if you're just reading it for fun, it, it's, it's just like you know the plot of a book, if you're, a uh, plot of a mm. novel. If you're reading nonfiction, you know the plot of the nonfiction that you're reading, and it just kind of becomes a mm-hmm. becomes a setting for you that yeah. li- lives in your mind. So I didn't really feel as though I had been researching as much as I'd just been living in that space. Into, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'd, I'd I'd been there just from some. But did you think about this? Did you did you feel like you were writing historical fiction? Yeah, yeah. Um, f- Oh, I don't know. How does it feel to write historical I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe did you feel like you were writing historical fiction up to a point? Because there is a tone to it that, yeah. that sits, it sits in that space. My trunk novels are historical fiction. Um, that is where I started when I started writing NaNoWriMo. Um, my first trunk novel is set in uh, 1302 uh, Verona, okay. Italy, um, mm-hmm. and it's about Dante. And it's also about uh, Romeo and Juliet at the same time. Okay, right, right away I'm interested in this. Yeah, uh, I'll rewrite it at some point or start again with it or maybe turn it into a novella or something. Who knows? Um, but, you know, right now it's this massive mess that I can't possibly rewrite. And it just... Ugh. Anyway, what? I love historical fiction. Yeah. So that's one. And then, uh, you know, another one. But... Uh, but, but, but I think that's. I think there's a there's an affinity there. I mean, obviously, Connie likes historical fiction as well. She writes, you know, a Jerome K. Jerome novel to say nothing of the dog, and she writes uh, 14th century England and, and Doomsday Book, and, and does all the research on that. But and, and and she's very very much aware of the fact that the science fiction element, time travel, is just a way to get her into the. Oh. Uh, and also to get a, a contemporary point of view person. Yeah. And but one of the more interesting things I. Um, heard from a historical novelist, uh, Cecilia Holland, who's a very good historical novelist, and wrote one science fiction novel, Floating Worlds, that became still kind of a classic. Oh, yeah, I don't know this one. Um, it's available through the uh, um, through the SF Masterworks thing at Golanx, I think. <clears throat> and she and people wanted to write another science fiction novel. She's written fantasy and that sort of thing. And her explanation was she needed to fulfill a contract, and she couldn't do the three years research and travel that she does, so she made up this planet and wrote the novel she was going to write. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I don't know. Science fiction is hard. Historical fiction is easy. If you you know the history. If you know the history, I suppose. I don't know. Um, uh, I like them all. I like everything. I like the best of everything. Well, that's what I think is fascinating about this, uh, this stuff we keep hearing about genres being mixed. And, and most of what you hear on these discussions, there's always a panel about science fiction and fantasy and horror all being blurred and mixed together in a blender and that sort of thing. But I think the same thing is true with historical fiction. The same thing is true with what used to be called women's fiction, yeah, yeah. Uh, psychological fiction. Joe Walton was uh, telling us earlier today that uh, you know when she wrote My Real Children, she was writing the women's novel, which was something you grew up with in the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. And it's a genre by itself. But it's a genre which, in that novel, becomes uh, a, a, a dual, alternate history kind of mm-hmm. science fiction thing. Um, which I think suggests that science fiction is a way you could approach any kind of fiction. You yeah. can write historical fiction. You can... 
by doing science fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, and um, I don't know where I'm going with this. Yeah, no, no. When, when, <laughs> when I rented Tao's Toolbox, it was, uh-huh. of course, a science fiction well, fantasy sure. thing, um, workshop. And uh, But what I brought was my historical novel, this uh-huh. Romeo and Juliet Dante thing. Yeah, okay. Um, because at that point, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't approach science fiction. It just, for some reason, it just wasn't coming for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is why I was so relieved when Waters of Versailles started working, uh, because my true love is science fiction fantasy, mm-hmm. mostly science fiction. Um, but what I, what I told the people there when they kind of went, well, this is not science fiction. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking at historical fiction with, I hope, a science fiction eye, right? I'm yep. looking at, I'm mm-hmm. looking at, um, like trying to make sure that I, those economics work, that I understand the economics of the time, that I understand the political situation, I understand the technology mm-hmm. situation. I, I, yeah, anyway. So, well, um, I, what, what you said about science fiction being hard is word for word what Tim Powers said when I was talking to him about a month ago. Because here's somebody else who grew up a stone science fiction fan. He knew science fiction inside and out. He, was, he read all the magazines and wrote one science fiction novel and had this spectacular career writing fantasy novels. So I said, why, do, why did you only write one science fiction? I said, it's too hard. Oh, history, but... <laughs> history I can understand. Anything worth doing is hard. But yeah. it is hard, yeah, because you're making it all up from scratch. This uh, novella that I've just finished drafting, um, 300 Years in the Future, I've got to make up that world. Mm-hmm. And that world has to hold together economically. And I think I've got it, but uh, we'll see. What the editors think. I'm glad you're thinking about economics because I think that's historically been a weak point of science fiction futures. It's the economics is the physics of world building. It underpins everything. Well, okay, and some science fiction pays attention to that. I think uh, if, if you look at certain, I mean, Bruce Sterling always worked out economics in great oh, detail. Oh, sure, but I mean, if you look at something like say Charles Strawson's, I think it's Seton's Children, and maybe, got, yeah. which is a, in fact, is about. The, you know, the economic impact of slow banking as a space opera mm-hmm. and how you can manipulate economic systems over uh, long periods of time when you have time lag caused by fast and light travel. And it's fascinating, but it's all about economics, the whole it's thing. Well, and and, and, and C.J. Cherry is famous for exactly this, too. C.J. is good at that, too. But if you look at the classic worlds of Heinlein and Asimov, the economics just doesn't work. No, I think, I think that pulp era was a different thing. Well, that's true. Let me ask you this. You're first published last year, but you've obviously been present and active in the field in the few years before that, leading up going to workshops, that kind of thing. Do you have a group of people you think is your cohort in the field? Yeah. um, Well, my wife, Alex (laughs) Delmonica, of course. Um, So, yeah. So I've been, you know, part of the science fiction community for Mm. a really long time, just Mm. simply as her plus one. Sure. Mm. Uh, So Alex is definitely my peer. Um, But yeah, one of the, one of the delightful things about, about, about getting to this point is, is making these fantastic friends. So John Chu down, Mm -hmm. we, I was just chatting with John Chu, Sarah Pinsker, Usman Malik. um, I'm going to just like, rattle off a whole bunch of names and a bunch of people in Toronto, Gemma Files, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful Madeline Ashby, David Nichol, yeah. um, Peter Watts, and Caitlin Sweet. I don't know if you know that Peter Watts' mm-hmm. wife is a wonderful writer as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, darker than Peter. Yeah, he's pretty She's dark. remarkable. She's really dark. Yeah. She's darker. Wow. 
uh, her book, The Pattern Scars, is uh, one of the darkest things that I've ever read in my entire life. Yeah, when I told Peter I thought it was darker, he got pretty upset with me. Mm-hmm. How important is being Canadian to, to that experience? Because sometimes when people talk about their creative cohort, they actually do think about, uh, they, they might mention any number of contemporaries, but listening to the group you're talking about, they are the people who are physically near to you as well. Yeah, a lot of them are, for sure. Alex and I lived in Vancouver for a really long time. Vancouver doesn't have a science fiction writing community. It has some science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why we moved to Toronto after I got laid off is... Um, to, to be part of the science fiction community in Toronto. So all these people, I'm mm-hmm. talking about Madeline Ashby and, and, and David Nichol and all these t- great Toronto writers um, are, are now people who are in our lives. Yeah. And in Toronto, we have a, a science fiction reading series, a specific reading series yeah. called mm-hmm. Chi Series, which is organized by um, Cheezine Publications. And, uh, and, and so we, monthly we get to meet our friends there. And, and listen to other people write or read their work, and it's fantastic. It's a wonderful Toronto science fiction community. is great. Is yeah, I've always wondered how those things happen. Now, Toronto has it's always had the Judith Merrill Library, which may have mm-hmm. cohered a lot of people there over the decades. Mm-hmm. But it's a great community. The Seattle area is a great uh, science fiction community. Uh, Chicago has a community. It's not that organized. And I, mm-hmm. I never can figure out why this happens in certain places and not others. I can tell you. Oh really? It yeah no it requires it requires a gregarious organizer mm. who can draw people in. Um, Toronto so Chi series wouldn't happen without uh, without Sandra Castori, mm-hmm. and she is she is very voluble. She attracts people. She is high status because she's mm-hmm. a publisher as well as a wonderful writer and poet. Um, and so you you have to have those organizers who are um, you know. Not, uh, the people admire and want to gather around. That's true. When I first moved to Chicago, this is just being me reminiscing decades and decades ago, there was a community there, and the young writer who was putting together the Windy City Writers Workshop was George Martin, and he had Phyllis Eisenstein coming in, and Gene Wolfe was coming in, and all those butters, and that was a very vital thing, and then they, well, George went off and did something else after that, and, and other people moved out of town, and that was kind of a diffuse, nice people, all nice people individually, and just don't get together the way you're describing in Toronto. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Do you feel competitive with those people? No. Because that's what I'm interested in as well. Like, is there a sense of competition with creative peers across across the field? Not because uh, one thing that I took out, and we've talked about it earlier today mm-hmm. even, uh, from the, the panel about science fiction in the 1980s, is they were intensely aware of each other mm-hmm. and very competitive. They greatly desired to impress two or three editors. They felt it was like difficult to sell to them. And, you know, they were, I mean, I think Michael Swant was talking about mm-hmm. uh, taking a Bruce Sterling story that he thought was incredible and actually taking a chunk of it and rewriting it into another story so that to, show, to prove that he could do the same thing better <laughs> and then getting it published. And so it's really kind of... And the, the value of that kind of thing, in a positive way, is it hones and sharpens and pushes and makes you strive to do better. And I'm, I'm fascinated now, as I look around to see, where if there's that sense anywhere in the genre right now of wanting to compete more than just... I mean, it's always important to compete with yourself and want to be, do better than you've ever done before. But quite often what drives you to it is an external sense of competition as well. I don't operate in that way. Okay. And it's a really good thing because my wife is a writer. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> if we 
were in co competition with each other, things would be pretty sad in our 650-square-foot condo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if back in the 80s, though, there were an identifiable, very small number of editors you had to impress. And I don't think the world is... Uh, through. Well, three, exactly. There's three in the 1990s you had to impress. You had to impress Ellen Datlow at Omni, or, or uh, Ed Furman at FNSF, or Gardner, Desois, or depending just before, Sean McCarthy, mm -hmm. at Asimov's. Those were the people. And if you didn't, they were the markets. Now mm. there's like a diverse range of markets and millions of editors and all that. I, th there, there, I think that's true. And I, I don't think that your generation could handle the experience that the 80s had. Or the 60s. I've been doing research in the 60s. And they used to have class. They, they would refer themselves as the class of 53. Or the, and the class of 62 was pretty impressive. There was Tom Dish, Russell Gwynn, Chip Delaney, Joanna Russ. Um, Roger Zelazny, all started public, but they apparently didn't feel competitive. They were staking out their own territory, so that um, you know Delaney was not writing what Russ was writing. None of them were writing what Dish was writing. None of them, but they all were very supportive, which is almost the opposite of what you're describing. Yeah. They they all thought oh, we could suddenly have all these different voices in the field, and that was one of those radical moments. Yeah, the field just expanded all at yeah. once. Since every single science fiction writer from Australia who ever lived has been asked an equivalent question to this then, as a genre writer from Canada, yeah. how do you feel that influences what you write and your, your, the view of, of your own work? God, what a horrible question. It is. But um, I mean, we get asked all the time. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm going to try and answer that sincerely. I've got to think about it for a second. Um, we, uh, <laughs> if you want to, okay. Google, um, we, we are in competition with Canadian literature. Uh, Canadian science fiction feels very strongly that Canadian lit is the thing that we are competing against. Mm -hmm. Can lit. Because if you want to um, get a, a grant mm -hmm. uh, uh, or you know any kind of government for support for your writing, you have to compete with Canlit, and you have to make maybe even make the granting bodies think that what you read, what you're writing, is Canlit. Yeah. And uh, and 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 Canlit is um, well. There's a song uh, that uh, Kari Marin, who is a uh, she she has a book coming out from Tor. Mm -hmm. She is a poet and a songwriter. She does geek rock, geek mm. geek music, not filk, her own songs. Um, she has a song called Canlit, which I, I <laughs> encourage you all to Google on uh, YouTube. Kari is brilliant and wonderful. And yeah, so she's got a YA book coming up from tour. Her um, editor was David Hartwell, um, which is really sad. Who so. did an anthology of Canadian science fiction? Or a couple. Stars, yeah, couple yeah. Um, David Hartwell was super in encouraging Canadian literature. Uh, I mean, there's, a, there's a part of me that thinks, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've written... Uh, letters in support of Candace Dorsey's uh, applications for grants and so forth. And it always seemed more generous than the state. Of course, by now, any government has more support of the arts than the United States <laughs> does. But on the other hand, in the last five years, we have a major science fiction and a major fantasy writer, each getting an Order of Canada thing with Guy Kay and, uh, and, and Rob Sawyer. And you've got Margaret Atwood, who's... Where, where does she fit into the Canlit versus um, science fiction fantasy world, do you think? Wow. Well, she has, since she joined Twitter 
perception of Margaret Atwood has changed a bit. It always seemed as though she was a bit standoffish of science fiction writers. Mm. But on Twitter, she is she's really supportive of science fiction, mm -hmm. verbally supportive. She uh, was a guest of honor at Sandra Castori, again, our great Sandra Castori mm -hmm. from, from uh, Cheesing Publications, organizes a science fiction colloquium, in, uh, which is basically a TED talk of mm -hmm. science fiction mm -hmm. and fantasy and spec. Uh, every year, every March, which is great. It's really, really fun. Margaret Atwood was a guest of honor this past one, and and everyone was really super surprised that she showed up and 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 was you know actively supportive of the field because she had previously said non-supportive things about science fiction, and we all you know remember that word for word, and we'll never forgive her for it. Mm -hmm. But but no, she is uh, obviously has changed her mind a bit. Uh, but I think she's getting older and she's I think she's having fun her talk at at the colloquium was a lot about how she is embracing the things that she was always passionate about as a child and a teenager mm. and that is one of the reasons why she's doing science fiction yeah that was one and, and she and Ursula Le Guin are apparently genuine friends they like each other even though um, they don't agree at all about about the nature of science fiction now, or about whether Atwood stuff is science fiction. But if her book about science fiction called In Other Worlds, a collection of essays, more or less weird essays that include things like um, an essay on uh, the, the Mar Margaret Brundage, the Weird Tales uh, cover artist who had sort of uh, softcore porn covers. But, <laughs> but if, you, if you look at the essay, she grew up in something not unlike what you're describing in rural Canada, uh, where she only had a few places she could get books, and she found the science fiction of the time, which was the early 50s. She found Arthur Clarke, and she found John Wyndham, and she that was what she knew of science fiction, and about all she knew of science fiction. So the entire growth of it uh, throughout the second half of the 20th century is something she more or less missed and came in um, mm. rediscovering later. Mm -hmm. uh, basically not even rediscovering, it's simply re rediscovering Le Guin. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, having a major figure like that who is at least not openly hostile to science fiction has to be a good thing. Yeah, supportive. She is supportive. Uh, it is, it's fantastic. And, and, and the grants, so the reason why, and it's probably the same in Australia, yeah. although our proximity to the United States is, you know, obviously we're not on the other side of the world, um, Canadian literature gets grants because if they didn't grant it, there would be no Canadian literature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We would only be able to read books written by, written or published down in the States. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's, that's why we get the grants. And um, Alex has been very lucky. She's got a few grants in the last little while. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thank the government of Canada very sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly the Australian, you know, Australian uh, writing community is dependent on a combination of Arts Council grants and, and actually doing doctorates and getting uh, support to do that. Oh, wow. Just about every second Australian science fiction writer is now a PhD because you can get three years' worth of uh, income support while you're doing your PhD. Nice. So, yes, do the doctor everybody now down there. Wow, I would like to be a doctor. Which is kind of, come on down and do a doctor. <laughs> hey, you're Canadian. You're almost one of us. You're oh, probably yes. allowed to. You're, you're, you're probably allowed to. So tell me... <clears throat> Do you have a feeling for the kind of space you want to write into in the future, the kind of things you want to be doing beyond the novella you're working on? You know, um, 
I don't really think about genre. And I just want to write. I just want to tell good stories, good, yeah. interesting mm-hmm. stories that that I care about. Um, you know, I have a lot of ambition, and I have a lot of uh, my my idea file is pretty deep. What do I want to work on next? Will I want to make the editors happy? <laughs> no, I do because they're so supportive of me, right? Yeah. So right now I've got I've got Ellen Datlow is, you know, constantly she's emailing me like every so often, not every day, obviously, or every week, mm-hmm. but you know, asking me when I'm going to send her the novella. Mm-hmm. Sheila would like the novella, mm-hmm. um, as well. So that feels good. Um, Neil Clark asked me yesterday when I'm going to send him something again mm-hmm. soon. Um, and uh, I, I want to I want to give these people what they want. <laughs> so I don't know yet. You know, in my heart of heart, what I want to do is I want to I want to win a Booker Prize of a science fiction novel. Okay. That's a reasonable goal. That's a reasonable Senate. goal. I mean, I, That's think, right I, I think those Booker judges have probably been born by now. How valuable to what you do do you think it is that, on one hand, you're like a baby writer who's only like two years into her published career, yes. but on the other hand, you are someone who is experienced yeah. and educated and informed mm-hmm. and familiar with the history of the genre? Mm-hmm. I think that is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Uh, I just wrote an essay for Clark's World uh, specifically kind of about that. What kind of value do I get out of being a late bloomer? Yeah. And, and yeah, I've got 40 years of reading at the adult level. I'm 49, right? I've yeah. probably been reading at the adult level yeah. since yeah. I was nine. Yeah. Um, you know, always reading lots of books and ad- adult books. So 40 years of reading. I've got uh, 25 years of a career. Mm. Um, I've got... <laughs> Uh, you know, having come out as a lesbian in the 80s, you know, a lot of life experience. And I think yes. that is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And if I am a good writer, which I think I am a good writer, I am not saying that I am a great writer. I'm saying I am a good writer. If I am a good writer, it's 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 because I'm older now. Yeah. And I would not have been a good writer in my 20s. I would have been an okay writer. Mm-hmm. How welcoming has the science fiction community been to you over the last, say, decade? And do you feel like it has become more so? Yeah, massively. Right. Massively welcoming. And But this is my personality. Is that's what I look for in the world, and that's what I see. Yeah. If you, mm-hmm. if you, if you look for, for, for the bad in the world, that's what you will see. I look for good in the world. Mm. So um, incredibly, incredibly welcoming. I feel, I feel social media is a wonderful thing for our community. And it's a wonderful organizing tool. It's a wonderful informational tool. It's a wonderful just emotional support tool. Yeah. Uh, both Facebook and Twitter are active mm-hmm. on both, and they both have their 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 different tones. But uh, I feel incredibly, incredibly welcomed. Yeah. And I see very little bad yeah. in our community. And I think I love our community so much. I love it. I adore mm-hmm. it, and I repel the people who want to make it unwelcoming to anyone. Yeah. That's a great attitude, and I, th- and I think you can see that at this convention. It's, uh, despite, I, mean, I started last year's Worldcon as well, which was more tense than this one was because of what was happening then. It was new, yeah. But it, it, was, it was a new thing, and, and now it's, okay, there are 
there are trolls in the world. But the con- the conversations, the hanging out at places, the sitting down in the lobby, like uh, you were earlier talking to uh, John Chu and, and Walter John and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, that's unaffected by, uh, by 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 the bad stuff. And I think you're right. I, I think there's there are people who come to uh, this conference or who will come to ReaderCon or come to my conference in Florida. Uh, will have say they had a bad time, and then later when you nobody talked to me, nothing happened, and then you realize they hold up in the room, they didn't go to the bar. All you have to do is go to the bar. I mean, it doesn't say that much well about the science fiction community that you have to go to a bar, but you kind of do. <laughs> you need. <laughs> well, I, th- I think I mean to be fair to those people who've in, you know encountered the community for the first time, like any established community, it has. Real you know, practical social barriers. You know, I think about conventions that I go to where I see people that I know. If I've been going to a convention for fifteen years and I see somebody once every year and a half, you know, it's like I need to see you. Uh-huh. And then somebody's going, "Hi, I'm you," and you're going, "That's right, but I, but, but, but. <laughs> and that is is a factor that comes yeah. in because I mean, I, I, I see people uh, around the peripheries of the groups of people who are chatting, and I kind of going you're sort of a bit lost. And quite often the community is warm and welcoming, but it can be just as self-involved as anybody, any, anyone oh, else yeah. and, and miss that as well. And it's hard to tell. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Is, somebody, is that person a bit lost? Yeah. Or are they just thinking about something really mm. important? Or have they got their earbuds in and they're actually like talking on the phone to someone and organizing mm. something with someone else, right? Mm. Like, uh, you don't get what you... You don't get what you need unless you ask mm. for it a lot in a lot oh, yeah. of cases. Mm. So, I don't know. It, it, it's hard. It's hard because a lot of us are introverts. Yeah. And introverts are introverted yeah. sometimes. So let me ask. You've got a new novelette coming out in January from Tor.com. Yeah, novel. Yeah, novelette. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then you've got this novella you're working on that's going to come out somewhere in the world when you've decided where it's to go. Yes. Which is a nice position to be in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hope I will be... Got some work to do. And have you started thinking about what goes beyond, what you're going to be doing beyond that yet? Yeah, yeah, my idea file. Um, I, uh-huh. uh, I'm pretty sure I could have answered that question coherently a few days ago, and now I've got Worldcon brain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the great things about uh, you guys sending out um, anthology calls is it sparks such incredibly great freaking <laughs> ideas. It really, really does. Yeah. So uh, um, somebody said, mm-hmm. said, said that he might be wanting to do an anthology about a certain topic, and, uh, and, and, and I have this fantastic idea that I'm just <laughs> dying to write. So yes, yes. I, I know exactly what I'm doing. It's going to be science fiction. It's going to be on. Uh, it's going to be far future science fiction. And it's going to be on a remote planet, and uh, yeah, it's going to be cool. Well, are we? We're at about our hour. So our hour. Because there's there's stuff I wanted to ask more. Well, about. well if you got something, we can. No, 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 okay. Because the, the the 300 years in the future thing fascinates me, mm. especially if you're working on economics. And earlier mm. we were talking with Joe Walton about. The difficulty of doing a mid-distance future. Far future, you don't need to worry about really how we got from here to there. If you're reading the Book of the New Sun, that's millions of years from now. Uh, two or three hundred years from now, uh, you can't just assume a bunch of technologies are 
plopped into place. You have to figure out how they evolved. Yeah. And one of the flaws, I remember talking to uh, I know, Brian Aldous, I think, about novels set six or seven hundred years in the future, and, and all the references to historical culture are culture up to the mid-20th century, and nothing in between. In other words, there's a sense that, okay, there is today, and then there's 600 years in the future, and there's nothing in between. <laughs> but when you're talking about mid-futures, you have to be able to convince the reader that that future can be derived from what we are doing right now. Yeah, I think I can. I think I can. And um, I would love to tell you about it. It would probably take about three hours. <laughs> but I think I can. And um, uh, I think the technology that I probably have um, the worst time with is how to power a suborbital lander. Mm-hmm. Because I am assuming that suborbital landers are going to be complete. We've got them now, right. right? I mean, they're in the experimental stage, but but um, how to power that? Because I want to power that in a greenish way, and I want to use chemical um, chemical engines. But it also doesn't mm. matter, right? I mean, mm. they ex- they can exist. They yeah. exist now. A suborbital lander mm-hmm. will exist three hundred years in the future. They just will. So, so that's good. One of the one of the underpinnings of this economic mm-hmm. situation is this is this is an artificial economy. It's an artificial world economy uh-huh. because uh, world economy has completely collapsed, right? Because uh, when the environment collapses, mm-hmm. the world economy collapses. So this is an artificial economy that is based on the idea that the only thing of value in the world is people's time. It's a professional services world. Hmm. <laughs> so this this is the underpinning of my yeah. my economics, and I think that that is, I think that arguably that could be absolutely true. Natural resources yep. in the future that we we're not going to fight over them. Yeah. We're going to have to apportion them somehow. Mm-hmm. And, but people's time is the important. So you're making an argument about the future as well as just you're not just making stuff up. You're saying this could. I, I think it could. Yeah. yeah, I think it could, and I think it should. Because a post-capitalist world. Yeah, but it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean... Yeah, it's post-capitalist. But it's not socialist. Yeah. But when you value people's time, everyone's time has a value. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not necessarily everyone. Okay, so I'm going to give you this one thing. <laughs> one super awesome thing. So some people's... We, we acknowledge that some people's time is mm-hmm. much more valuable than other people's time, mm-hmm. right? If you are the engineer mm-hmm. who does something amazing, like invent something incredible, incredible. Your time is much more valuable than anyone else. At that point, one of the underpinnings of this economics is you get turned into a private bank. You are now a bank. Your time is so valuable that you are your own economic entity, and you can now invest resources in other people's um, endeavors. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can have whatever lifestyle you want. Yeah. Because you're a private bank. Interesting. Well, that's something to look forward to. It is then. <laughs> but until then, it's probably time for all of us to sort of wrap up because we have the rest of our days to get on with. But, you know, as, as Worldcon draws to us a, a close, we all you know, sort of wing our way back to our own distant parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But I have to say thank you very, very much for making the time to talk to us today. We thank really you. appreciate it. It has been an utter joy. <laughs> thank you. It's great to have you here. And we will see you at future conventions and on future podcasts. Yes, I'm sure. I hope so. And we will be back again sometime soon. Sometime soon. Sure.